1: Hello, and welcome to The Political Party, this one featuring Dr Jan Halper-Hayes. Keen watchers of political media will have seen Jan before. She was a consultant to President Trump's transition team. She's the former chair of Republicans Overseas, the body that looks after, as you would imagine, members of the Republican Party in different countries. I've interviewed her before on Unspun, and she was um, charming, funny, very likeable, and a great person to sit opposite and listen to, because even though... As you would imagine, there was a lot of things that she would say to disagree with uh, from my point of view and perhaps from yours. She is nevertheless uh, permanently charming, very thoughtful and great company. And it's a position we don't usually or often hear from, so it's a unique perspective on politics. This is one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done because every guest has something different to bring, whether it's insight, whether it's from their career, whether it's that, that peak behind the curtain, which, which I always love so much. Sometimes it is more opinion-driven. Sometimes more it's about what the political values they have are and what their opinion is. And this interview uh, contains all of those things um, and becomes, at times, a policy discussion, perhaps in a way that it wouldn't have done with other guests. Jenny's a brilliant guest, and I'm sure will provoke many thoughts uh, and reactions. You can send them to the official email. Well, there's not even an unofficial one. The only email I'm aware of for this podcast, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow Jan on Twitter, at biz underscore shrink. That's B-I-Z underscore shrink. You can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. I know I annoy people asking for our interviews all the time, but it really does help. So thank you for all your your lovely reviews. So here we go. An hour in the company of someone who knows Donald Trump, who knows the Republican Party, and is willing to defend them both. Jan, welcome to the political party.
2: I'm so glad to be back with you, Matt.
1: <laughs> it's good to be back with you. Jan, uh, firstly, we should explain who you are. You are a, a psychologist by trade, as well as being a, a prominent Republican. Um, I can't wait to ask you about how those two worlds um, uh, overlap. But I was looking at your Twitter feed uh, today, just having a look at things that you you tweeted recently. You you tweeted something, the F scale, the the fascist scale. And I took the test. Um, Now, it's a scale uh, that basically decides where your politics... I scored 2.13 and it says that I'm a liberal airhead. Um, What did you score on that?
2: I scored um, 3.5, which was I am a tolerant and true American.
1: It says here, it was within normal limits, an appropriate score for an American. So there you go. Um, you are a Republican. Yes. Where on the Republican scale are you? On the, on the, are you on the left of the party or on the right of the party?
2: Well, it, I think what people don't understand, because America is so big, that how you might vote at a state level could be completely different than how you vote at a federal level. So on a federal level, from the first time I could vote, I voted Republican because I believe in less government. In fact, I think I was about 17 years old, and I had to do my first income tax return because I had made enough money and I had to pay them, and boy, I was really annoyed about that. And I thought, there needs to be a box on here that I can check which Agency, which department should get my money? Because all government does is waste money. Yeah, you know, so that's always been a theme for me. Now I lived in San Francisco, California, and I definitely voted Democrat um, because my friends were gay, um, my friends were liberal, but more importantly, is that what I was voting for were the right policies and the right programs for the people that lived in the state. And so um, I'm definitely for same-sex marriage. I've mostly been pro-choice from the standpoint that um, who am I to tell someone what to do with their body? However, if it came to me, I wouldn't have an abortion. Um, So more
1: capitalist than conservative?
2: Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And as Donald Trump said, this is the Republican Party, not the Conservative Party. It's gone to the extreme just as the progressives of the left. I mean, both of them need to have a good old coming to Jesus meeting and get over their identity crisis.
1: It's interesting to say coming to Jesus, because religion plays a part in American politics in a way that perhaps it doesn't here in the UK. Are you a person of faith and does that inform your politics?
2: Uh, I am a person of faith, and no, I believe in separation of church and state
1: because it's a big it's a big part of not just it's not fair to say it's just a big part of the Republican party it's a big part of politics in America isn't it is a demonstration of faith do you think we'd ever have in this modern era an atheist president of the United States
2: well, That's a very interesting question. I actually think i don't know in my lifetime um Of course, if I live, you know, another 30, 40 years, maybe. But um, I think it's very possible because it has become very secular. In fact, my take on the millennials and their concern about climate change is actually that's their God. That's their something bigger than themselves to believe in because it really is the social conservatives where religion comes to play.
1: Um, you strike me as, uh, and the fact that you voted Democrat for the reasons that you did, a liberal Republican, uh, if that's not an oxymoron, but you, you're absolutely right to say it's the Republican Party, not the Conservative Party, although the Republican Party has been for many years, at various times, a bastion of conservative thinking. Where does Donald Trump lie on that scale? Is he Is he a liberal Republican? Is he a conservative Republican? Or is he something else?
2: Well, you know, Donald Trump Hasn't always necessarily been a Republican. That's right. Um, and in 1999, he actually gave up his uh, registration with the Republican Party and joined the Reform Party because he was – and this was in New York. It's not like we have the Reform Party that's across America. Yeah. But he he also went through a transition because he had been pro-choice. He had been liberal on some things. Um, When you said liberal Republican, actually, in this day and age, it seems like it's an oxymoron. However, when I got into politics, one of my first jobs, I was a political appointee to Mayor Lindsay of New York City. And at the time, Nelson Rockefeller was the governor. He was regarded as a liberal Republican. Dianne Feinstein, who's the senator from California, who I have known for 35-plus years— has always been considered a conservative Democrat because you're conservative if you're focused on national security and economics, and then it's the social part that leads you um, to whether you're conservative or not. Um, And so she has been a conservative Democrat because she's voted with the Republicans on national security and on economic issues.
1: So, for Donald Trump, then where, where does where, where would you place him on the scale now?
2: Um, I think it's too early to tell. He did have a very interesting interview just before the State of Union with a group of employees. Uh, sorry, of uh, journalists, and he said something very interesting. He said, "Before I got into this job." As a business person you could make lots of decisions with your head but what I've discovered is that you have to make more decisions with your heart and that doesn't surprise me about him because people don't know all these good things that he really does like the night before the inauguration there was a young man with his three-year-old sleeping in a car and Washington Post done a story on it, and Donald Trump invited him to come to Blair House and gave him a check for $10,000. Well, two weeks ago, the young man's father came to the White House to meet Trump because the young man used the money to help his father get medical treatment for cancer, and the father is in remission. You know, those kinds of things. And I think that that will maybe bring us back to having liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. But i it's not going to happen for a while. It's just the extremes of these parties is not good for America.
1: Donald Trump is the epitome for many people of, a, of an extreme Republican. A lot of people say that he's not really a, a Republican at all. People including George W. Bush uh, and, and previous leaders of the party have, have, have effectively washed their hands of him as an individual. Um He's part of the problem, though, isn't he? He's
2: no, no. He's extreme. Actually, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because I'm at the point where I find it hard to even listen to people on the news with the questions that they're asking, because it's so negative and it's it's unhealthy. Donald Trump is not. He's being blamed for polarizing the nation. However, we have been polarized for almost 3 decades. So it's not anything new. Our government is incredibly dysfunctional, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, and there have been some of politicians from both sides who have written op-eds about it. But I think Donald Trump is what, in the psychological world, we call the identified patient. So when you've got, let's just think of a family system. You've got a family system. The family's dysfunctional. But there's one person, the black sheep, the scapegoat, the one that gets blamed for everything because everything is projected onto them and people aren't necessarily taking responsibility or owning their part of it. And I think that... Because he's such an extreme personality and because he's willing to challenge things, and not always with the best of language, um, he is the identified patient right now for all the things that are wrong in our government.
1: It's not just the political problems that people have with him, is it? It's, It's the tone in which he governs and the way in which he talks about other people and whether it's disabled journalists or Mexicans there seems to be something uniquely disrespectful about this president, that whatever your political differences with Obama or Clinton or W. Bush or H. W. Bush, none of them have really been this offensive.
2: Well, I don't... I don't know how offensive he's been because part of it is that the liberal media takes things out of context. So when he was talking about the Mexicans, over 27% of the people in our prisons are from Mexico and are illegal. And so he was really talking about the problem in context. Now, when he made that horrible imitation of that journalist, no, he didn't need to do that. And sometimes he's completely out of line. When he said about the Muslims, what he said was, and we used the seven countries that were passed by Congress from the Obama administration. This wasn't what Donald Trump came up with you know, and pulled out of the sky. What he said was, they cannot give us the information to vet them properly. And until we figure out what the hell is going on, we're not going to let them in. So when you have it in context, it isn't as bad as the media makes it. But they hate him so much that it really, where he calls it fake news, I call it distorted.
1: The media will always distort politicians according to the the political direction of the outlet. The Guardian and The Telegraph will have two very different takes on speeches by Labour politicians and Conservative politicians and I think people are used to that being part of the the landscape of political debate. But he doesn't help himself. He gives more red meat to his enemies perhaps than any other politician I can think of, certainly in a democracy. Is there a lack of sensitivity, do you think, sometimes around the way that we talk about things that people are sensitive about?
2: Okay, you're asking me with people or if we're focused on Trump and is he insensitive? No, I don't think he is insensitive. In fact, I happen to think he is very smart and very strategic because...
1: So he behaves like this on purpose.
2: When when have you known a politician who has been in the news every single day? Every single day. And then people, some people, complain about his tweets. Well, his tweets are very strategic. One, either to frame the issue. Two, he doesn't like what they're saying about him, so he's gonna divert it and get it onto something else. Um, Three, is to float ideas and to see how people respond. Right now, we've got this big issue going on about the dreamers, the children who were brought here, they're illegals, and here's a perfect example. It was all talked about of 800,000 getting amnesty or a path to citizenship. And what did he do? He came out and he said, wait a minute, how about 1.8 million? Because I really care about them. And you know what the Democrats have been doing today in Congress? They refuse to discuss the bill. Schumer refuses to bring the Dreamers bill onto the floor and all the Republicans and Donald Trump are ready to give them what they want, so he's been very, very strategic in what he says, and he knows that it's going to create it. it it's going to create people who are so obsessed with his tweets and get so upset, and I think he absolutely loves it.
1: I have no doubt he loves it. And I totally get that in terms of self-promotion, in terms of confounding and confusing the enemy, uh, he's a unique exponent of a particular brand of political communication. But isn't there a wider problem about the tone in which politics is... Conduct- All of us that love politics and care about it don't really want to exist in a cesspit. We would rather, those of us that, that love the battle of ideas, would rather have rational conversations, even with people that we disagree with. Is there not a sense that he is willfully dragging us into the gutter? And I get all the all the ways that we can frame his behaviour in a way that's good for him, but the overall cost to politics is severe. I mean, isn't he creating a lack of faith in democracy that that is quite profound?
2: Well, you have to explain to me what information you have to think it's... Um, a lack of democracy.
1: Well, I think if people lose faith, not just in the individuals, as, the, as people will lose faith in Trump, and they they will they will question the moral character to, to such an extent, they will actually lose faith in the entire system, and that's not a good thing.
2: If we have separation of church and state, should we worry about moral character, or should we worry about him being the uh, commander in chief, the chief executive of all the employees? the person who is supposed to deal with Congress.
1: I get all that, and I I will often have these debates with other people about how competence really is is ultimately what matters. But there is a a wider... There is a sense that politics, democratic politics in America and in in Britain and in parts of Europe, is in a sense of, of crisis, partly because of the way that Donald Trump is... Ruling America, that actually this will this will erode faith in democratic institutions. and the cost to that can be deeply right. severe
2: we so so we go back to my point of him being the identified patient because, as you've just described it because of Donald Trump, and it is well, let's see. Brexit didn't happen because of Donald Trump,
1: no, but it's similar
2: it's forces similar
1: in similar right, economies.
2: But then there is, well, let's blame Donald Trump. What was going on in the Netherlands? What was going on in France? Donald Trump had nothing to do with it. Yes, I think our political systems are in crisis. And people love to call Donald Trump a liar. Well, you know what? What politician hasn't lied? And what the reason that people absolutely love Donald Trump is that he's authentic. He shows you his faults. He does it. He says what a lot of people are thinking. And it really is a much smaller percentage. And the other thing, not that I really believe uh, it matters about uh, the polls, the popular polls or how people feel about him, because we had two of the worst candidates in terms of disliking and everything else. However, what it really is, the poll you want to pay attention to is the country going in the right direction or the wrong direction. And it, for eight years under Obama, it was between 63 and 72% wrong direction. So that's why I also knew that Hillary Clinton never had a chance of winning because she was terrible in her marketing strategy of Obama's third term. But... Back to your point, as if Donald Trump is at fault for this this disintegration. No, I think what it is, is that it's bringing it to the surface for us to talk about it. It's getting us to look at these things. It's getting us to delineate between what we're willing to accept and what we won't accept. And the people that care about the moral issues, they're going to just always dislike Donald Trump. But since December, his approval rating has actually gone up seven points because he's done the right things. And that's what I've always cared about. I believed that he was a problem solver. You know, I had him take the presidential temperament assessment tool and I wrote a two-part article on it. I always believed he had the right temperament. Temperament is not personality. Temperament is what we're born with. He is a problem solver. He's focused on the now, where people, or the Democrats, accuse him of fear-mongering. He actually has pinpointed exactly what the problems are, and he's addressing them, and he's taking them on.
1: Just on his psychological... I mean, you must know that. I'm going to bring this up. You did at one point describe him as psychologically unbalanced.
2: I did. (laughs) I definitely did. And, And here, again... taken out of context so what happened was he just absolutely floors 16 other candidates that were supposed to be our greatest bench ever and he gets the nomination and for the next three weeks he is behaving in a way that Ben Carson can't explain it on TV. Laura Ingram can't explain it. Newt Gingrich can't explain it. I'm listening to all of them. And I did have a late night the night before, and I really didn't want to go into the studio. So my only excuse for being as blunt as I was was that I was doing that interview from bed with a little hangover, and uh, none of my controls were in. Oh, but well, then I,
1: maybe you spoke your mind.
2: Well, I did. I did. But what I said was there is an element of him that is psychologically unbalanced right now, and we need to figure out why. Because something is going on, and it it is upsetting him because he should be embracing the fact that he's got the nomination, and none of his behavior for the past three weeks has been that way. So that was August 3rd. Then, on August 17th, he had replaced Paul Manafort, his campaign chairman, with Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. It was the first time he ever publicly apologized. In that interview, he said, or in that press conference, he said, I understand that I've said some things that have been offensive to people, and you know, I'm sorry that I've offended some people. I... Then called my Republican National Committee friends up and said, what's really been going on here? And what it came out to be was a lot of internal struggles in the campaign. And it'd be boring to other people for me to go into the details of it, but that was enough to let me know why his behavior was as it was. Since then, I will tell you, I didn't send my ballot in, I faxed it the morning because I was consistently watching his behaviour and if any of that behaviour had reappeared, I don't know if I would have voted for him. I would have been concerned.
1: So you've had concerns at times. I mean, to, 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 to the people who consume Donald Trump through the news and in snippets that they get perhaps on social media, they'd look at him and say he's psychologically unbalanced now. You know, his behaviour isn't what we expect from a politician, certainly not the leader of the free world.
2: Well, and there we go again, because what we expect... I, I have told my clients for years, um, if anyone has not told you the expectation ahead of time but is telling you after the fact, you haven't lived up to it, just tell them, don't should <laughs> on me. Because enough <laughs> of these shoulds of life. Those are our standards. He doesn't care. What does that matter? Should we? Should we care? I don't know if we should care because I think the world is changing and I think that he is also a reflection of what has what reality TV has done to our culture. Do you like it? I do I like it I don't really watch it.
1: But do you like what it's done to our culture?
2: No. Uh you know, I I think my verdict is out. What I think it has done is it has taken the mask off of people, Mm. that we have had the chance to see that people are very human, that these people that are very human with their flaws and everything else and bad press and good press succeed, they become famous, uh, they start businesses and do all sorts of incredible things. Um, And it has made some of the cultural norms, like don't say anything bad about someone, all those kinds of rules, I think have been thrown out the window. And it is why people are, are just willing to accept Donald Trump.
1: Certainly, there's enough people willing to accept him to to, to get him into the White House. Um, I just wonder, though, and I, I sort of return to this: for those of us who really care about politics and care about people and care about you okay. know that's what gets into politics. I do. Want the I world do. to be a better I'm place, and we want as a result of that. I don't want people to. I don't want people to be upset or offended. I don't want certainly not people who are the often the most defenceless in society to feel that the powerful are not only enacting policies that will make their life more difficult, but almost actively mocking them and saying, well, he I'm just reflecting the anger. He
2: mocked one person.
1: But that's part of a wider community, and that shows an attitude well, towards a wider... No,
2: he did that while he was campaigning. All right, has he done it again? No. And see, that's the thing, is that they made that, the media just put it stamped it into our brains that that you end up not seeing all these other good things about him. He turned the political world in America upside down, upside down for the better, for the better. We have, I think it's somewhere between 32 and 35 Republican congressmen who are not going to run again. Yeah. You know, he's kicking those never Trumpers out because they're making the decision to go. He is doing things that is really, really gonna improve our dysfunctional government, which is multi layered. People think it just has to do with capitalism and cronyism and the Democrats said, Oh, he's only, you know, done this for big business. Tax reform, yeah. And how many people are getting bonuses, have gotten stocks that Apple is bringing $350 billion back into the US. They're paying $38 billion in taxes. So I really look at, he said, these are the problems. This is what I'm going to do about it. And he's doing it. And it has been positive. And frankly, that's what I care about more than focusing on his behavior because I mean if he was my patient I could help him change. But
1: What, what advice he's would you not. give him? What advice would you give him if he was your patient?
2: Um the one thing I think about Donald Trump is that he had his older brother who died of alcoholism on a pedestal. And he had his Father, on a pedestal and when he was a teenager he was very rebellious and I don't think he got the approval, the accolades that he needed at that time in his life which I think is what causes him to almost be addicted to needing feedback. That would be the one thing that I would do, have him address.
1: Do you think he has other vulnerabilities?
2: Oh, he shows lots of... Our, I mean, he's human. Yeah. Now, where people think he's thin-skinned because he needs to strike back when people criticize as a New Yorker, and you can talk to any of us New Yorkers, we totally get that behavior. I spent 15 years commuting between San Francisco and New York, and I used to say when my plane landed at JFK, I suddenly felt my sharp elbows get out. You know, my attitude changed. You, know, you, like, always have to have your dukes up. And that is something where I think that he won't let something go. Now what we say is take the high road. Yeah. However, however, let's look at it this way. Uh, Schumer and Pelosi where. She is the minority leader, and, you know, he is the minority leader in the Senate. And he tweets and says, well, you know, Nancy and Chuck. Now, that in some respects is disrespectful because they expect, he expects people to call him Mr. President. Well, why did they take it laying down? Why didn't they come back and deal with it? Now... We could argue it in a couple of different ways. Yeah. They took the high road. But how many high roads do you take? My son was bullied in school and very, very badly. And I constantly told him, take the high road. And one day he came home and told me it was really bad. I mean, he didn't want to go on living. It was that bad. And I said, well, maybe I've been wrong about that. So don't take the high road. And over the next week he headbutted one of them and he did something else to the other and he was never bullied again. So
1: we should headbutt Donald Trump?
2: No, he's headbutting other people, but maybe they could headbutt back <laughs> to give him a little bit of his crap. But that's
1: the but isn't that that's the danger when Hillary Clinton did try and fight him on those terms she referred to a basket of deplorables. She was then condemned for lowering herself to his level. It's very hard tonight to campaign against someone like Trump.
2: Well, uh, her... She should have never said deplorables. She should have never said they're homophobic, they're racist, they're misogynist, they're... Because it even was, though,
1: Even if there is some truth in it?
2: OK, it was as bad as Romney saying the 47% that... Are on welfare. So if you want people to vote for you, you don't put them.
1: You talk Trump, but not his in, voters.
2: In a, exactly. You don't do that because you're alienating them. It is why Bernie Sanders' potential voters sat at home because also it came out that the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, had fixed it. And Bernie Sanders had been saying that and it it did it came out and they were really angry because frankly Bernie should have had it if they didn't have super delegates and super delegates are uh, elected officials and they all committed to Hillary ahead of time we in the Republican National Committee don't have super delegates everyone votes at the convention and I think Bernie would have won. Do you think he'd have beaten Trump? I do, because of the millennials. The millennials are now the biggest group of voters, bigger than us baby boomers, and he had them in the palm of his hand. The biggest group
1: in terms of number or likelihood to vote?
2: uh, Well, of the age to vote, you know, coming of age and caring about things. But
1: turnout amongst young people would be lower than it would be... On older groups?
2: I don't think that we can go to conventional wisdom. And I don't think in 2016, conventional wisdom applied. Because here's the other thing we have never, ever had two politicians, both Bernie and Trump, where more than a couple of thousand people showed up. Yeah. yeah. Tens of thousands were showing up for Bernie and for Donald Trump. In fact, there was one before. The big numbers were coming out for Trump, and he was with Pence, and they were going to, uh, like, a, a 4-H thing. A 4-H is uh, in, the, in the country, like the cows are there, and the sheep are there, and the people that are into agriculture, you know. And so, uh, the bus arrives. It hadn't, the place hadn't been vetted ahead of time. There were over 70,000 people because they heard Trump was coming. Pence said to him, Donald, I know how to handle this group. You've never been in it. Let me get out there. And the Secret Service was beside themselves because they didn't know what to do with such a large group. But both of them, for the first time, they were both authentic. And see, that's the other thing. It's the authenticity. It's why people are willing to accept Bernie's faults and Donald Trump's faults.
1: Is this a brief period we're living through, or do you think people's normal political desires will return to things, you know, where they prefer, for want of a better phrase, managerial professional politicians over demagogues?
2: No. I I think that things have really changed because people are fed up with the packaged, primed, (laughs) professional PR-guided politicians... Who lie.
1: So whenever they're going, Donald Trump's a liar, well, guess what? They've always lied. But is there not are there not lies and lies? Are well, there not lies where purely because of the way that a lot of political interviews are structured, politicians find imaginative linguistic tricks to avoid saying, of course, unemployment's fallen, and they find some area of the economy where you know unemployment has or employment has gone the other way. And really big grand lies, you know, the the Russian stuff for instance is a, potentially an act of treason
2: <laughs> There has been 18 months and no evidence whatsoever
1: well, It's and, all being gathered
2: uh, You know what, and have you realised that they found out that Hillary Clinton gave the money to her law firm and the Democratic National Committee are the ones that funded the Christopher Steele dossier and what has been coming out is implicating on the Democratic side what they have done to cause this. Nothing
1: But the funding doesn't prove that the information's wrong.
2: Oh. Comey had said... Purely playing
1: devil's advocate.
2: Okay, Comey had said that it was salacious and inaccurate. Steele was fired and he was regarded as no longer credible because the information had not been vetted. So what we, this is just a big time waster and I, I, mark my words, it will eventually come out and it will be verified that there was no collusion.
1: But some of the details have been... Difficult. Jeff Sessions got himself into trouble because he said he hadn't met with them. Then it turned out he had. Mike Flynn got into trouble for having met with them. And and there's there's a sense that actually people had been meeting. Then they said they hadn't been meeting. Then it turned out they had. So there's definitely been some form of relationship that, I mean, purely as a patriot, I would worry, Democrat, Republican, whatever, if I was an American about links to Vladimir Putin.
2: Well, actually, Trump has always wanted to become buddies with him because it would be nice to not have Russia as an enemy.
1: But is he coming at it from a geopolitical sense that he wants to neutralise and effectively end the old, uh, effectively extension of the Cold War between these two huge nations? Or is it more that he likes Putin as an individual and wants to be as powerful as he is?
2: No, I don't think it has anything to do with the latter. I think that Donald Trump would much prefer to have our country be allies with some, with another country as powerful as Russia is. But let's just go back because you made a comment about Mike Flynn lying and um, who was the other Jeff one? Jeff Sessions. Oh, all right. Jeff Sessions. Are we going to call him a liar or there were people at the event? There were people at the event and he forgot it. Dear me, do you know how many events these guys go to and how many people they see? Now, Mike Flynn did lie. Yeah. And he now has uh, a lawsuit where he's countering because of all the things that have come out with Christopher Steele and the DNC being involved. He wants to clear his name. He doesn't want to go to jail. Who does? Right.
1: <laughs> well, right. some people do, but right. we're not here to talk about them.
2: Right.
1: Uh, as a psychologist, politics must be a fascinating thing to to be a part of. There are so many, I think, clichés and and views out there, and I would like to put a couple of them to you that I think have taken root. One is that politicians are more likely to be psychopaths than than the general population. Do you think that's true? No. And is that through experience? or?
2: It's because... A psychopath is a really demented human being. I don't think we have had those that are seriously demented.
1: But I suppose it's a scale, isn't it? So you could have people with more psychopathic traits in politics that maybe have less empathy, maybe in leadership roles.
2: How many politicians, whether it's in the UK or in the US do you think really care about the people or
1: most of them i think
2: self-serving i think it's
1: all well you can care about others and yourself at the same time but i i think most of them are motivated in a positive way on 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 all sides of the spectrum do you
2: i don't believe that about all our politicians in the u.s i think that part of Our system that forces them to have to raise as much money as they do Mm. makes them self-serving to keep their job and therefore willing to give in to different lobbyists when it it doesn't serve the people the best way.
1: So would you have state funding of political parties?
2: Uh, No, I wouldn't have state funding. But I would, boy, would I put the donation limits back in. Absolutely. I, it would be fascinating to see how our politicians could campaign if they had the same restrictions that they, had, that they have in the U.K. Can't start until six months before and you only get 50000 I would just absolutely love that. Well, and Donald Trump, he, that's what he did. Hillary spent well over a billion and Donald Trump spent something like 40 million, 50 million, not even 100 million.
1: You wrote a book called Quiet Desperation, The Truth About Successful Men. What is the truth about successful men?
2: Well, uh, I interviewed over 4,000 men and I followed 43 men's lives for two years. And when was this? This was uh, late 80s. What I was interested in was what were their conflicts. And so there were three major conflicts. The first is the obligation to responsibility versus the desire for freedom. If I didn't have family, if I didn't have to get home to anyone, I'd work all the time. Or I'd get a sailboat and I'd sail around the world or I'd open up and flip hamburgers. You know. The... Second one was the conflict between being rational, logical, and objective versus trusting their gut reaction. And I think in that respect, men have come really far because when I was interviewing men then, you didn't have feelings. Yeah. And, and they didn't. Men weren't to have feelings. I mean, I don't know how it was here, but. Young men were raised when they were about six suddenly Stop crying act like a man, you know, don't whine be a big boy and Not have feelings acknowledged nor did they have the they didn't have the language of feelings and I have watched men change enormously for the better in that and the last conflict because I did my study when women were really just coming into executive and managerial roles. It was called wives, lovers, mistresses, dot, 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 and women, because men regarded women as these foreign objects invading their space. And I've always been rather sympathetic to that, because if you think about it, Everything was going just fine. You know, all the cultural rules were there. The feminists weren't, you know, banging on their chest and they weren't complaining about things. And suddenly the next day you're told, hey, I know your life was comfortable. It's not going to work like that anymore. You know, you need to change because I don't like how it's been. And you're, like, you're a man and you're going, wait, everything was working fine. So I think there has been a huge adjustment that they've had to make, and when you think about something being forced on you, it is more difficult to change, and there's always some resistance. Now, at that time, 83% of the men told me that they had had either a one-night fling or an affair, and I have found this whole sexual harassment issue that has come out very interesting because it was accepted back in those days and well known that there were quite a few men who were infidel infidels
1: There's a distinction isn't there between infidelity and rape and sexual assault i mean if
2: absolutely absolutely it, it, let's 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 leave rape aside but if we if we look at sexual assault and and i think that we have we've started to use words that make it so dramatic and horrible the way in which sexual quote-unquote, assault happens, more often than not, is repetitive and subtle. Now, Harvey Weinstein, okay, set him aside because he, he's just off the charts. But when you look at how it has existed in the business world, people have been asked to have drinks. Suddenly, there's a hand on a knee. Uh, Suddenly, well, we're here and away. Why don't you come to my room? You know, those kinds of things. And one of the issues for women is that they haven't been raised to learn how to just flat out say no. You know, they don't want to hurt someone's feelings they laugh, they giggle, hoping you'll get the message. And that, because I was actually very active in um, the consulting and training when this came out in the States in the 80s. And we put men and women through assertiveness training and learning how to be direct, learning how to understand the messages that were coming from men and the messages coming from women. In fact, when we entered the business world, and, and I I entered in the late '70s, early '80s, it was regarded as, you know what, uh, just be aware that there'll be some uh, improprieties, but just try to ignore it. It wasn't, it wasn't until. 1975, and there was testimony for the. It, this was in New York City, and it was the commission. And a professor from Cornell University was the first one who articulated sexual harassment. And after that, then, and the New York Times did an article the very next day, and it suddenly was out there a bit more. But even with the laws that existed, non-disclosures, they did slut-shaming, they protected the men. What I do think has been great is that the men have not been protected and the ones who have really just assumed they had the rights. I mean, and that's the attitude, that they had the right to have whatever they wanted in Whatever, And that's where power went way too far.
1: Does it feel for you on issues like this that there is a, a conflict, and I would say the personal is the political, between your Republican values and your experience as a woman? Do you often feel that actually sometimes the party you're in, the wing of politics you're in, has not best served your gender?
2: Well, we have the 14th Amendment, and that 14th Amendment deals with equality and a few other things. I don't think either side has really served women well. For example, Obama elected in '08, For two years, he had the House, he had the Senate, he had the White House. At that point, The Equal Rights Amendment could have been put forth to finally be voted on and accepted. Did they do it? No. Why didn't they? I think, and it's gonna be very interesting to watch what happens with this dreamers issue and if the Democrats step up to it because they're a little lost. They don't have a very strong platform on anything. So it's gun control and it's the illegals And it's abortion or pro-choice. But I think, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, is that they don't want those issues to be solved because those are their campaign issues. And I think Trump has been smart enough to beat the Democrats at their own game. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the Democrats play this.
1: But the way he's talked about women is unlike any other recording of a president I've ever heard. Well, I did a
2: lot of radio shows when that came out. And what I basically said is I was the wrong woman to ask because of not only doing my book and interviewing so many men and being an advisor to a lot of men in powerful positions like Donald Trump that... I am somewhat immune to it, disgusted by it, but immune to it. And it wasn't shocking to me because I had been exposed to it quite a bit. Donald Trump, my take on it was that that was typical locker room talk for his generation. And I'm not going to repeat a lot of the things that I have heard.
1: A lot I, of men his age would have been shocked by that one. I think most people are hearing it. It's crass, at the very least. And it's, it demonstrates for a lot of people a, a deep seated disrespect of 50% of the population.
2: I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And when you have a bunch of these powerful, alpha, full of themselves men. There is a lot of that kind of talk that goes on. Still? Yes.
1: Yes. In terms of changing that, and uh, I would hope most people would want to, if not all people would want to change that sort of behaviour, how important then is is female representation in politics, in in boardrooms, to changing that culture? Would women talk about men that way?
2: No, I think we'd be more inclined to say, ugh, that fat belly. I don't think I could (laughs) ever sleep with him. Um, You know, more, or we might say, oh, he's hot or, you know, whatever. But um, I think that it's going to be a long time coming when we're going to get, balance of men and women in boardrooms. I think it actually has to happen in everyday work life, and that's more important, because I've sat on boards, and you're not really dealing with the everyday issues. You're not really dealing with those leaders and the policies that need to be changed to make it better.
1: But wherever power lies, you'd, you'd want...
2: Absolutely,
1: gender equality of some regard. Does that does that not go against your Republican principles? Isn't that a, a typical left wing view to have the state intervene and tell us who we shouldn't who we shouldn't you know have quotas and things? Does that not go oh, against the? Oh, I, I am a
2: big one for quotas. In fact, you know, I've been finding it so fascinating these past few years of people not wanting quotas. I, I who cares? What gives you the leg up? What we all knew when we were coming into the business world, we didn't care how the door got opened. What we knew was that we had to prove ourselves. So what what does that really matter? But to make an assumption that Republicans don't care about women because the Democrats talk about women's health...
1: Not and- that don't care, but just that it would go against the... If you wanted to have affirmative action or, or, or the equivalent for women, would it... Does that not go, you know... It's, for someone who believes in a small state that it feels like a contradiction?
2: It... The feminist movement legally came about because there was a civil rights act that was going to be passed and it was dealing with um, religion, colour, race, creed and one of the... I would say, with retrospect, a very misogynistic uh, senator said, oh, why don't we put women in there, too? They weren't original originally in the drafts. Women went into it, and Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem seized upon it because that really opened the door to get this issue in the forefront. We were not going to be included with all the others in that Title Eight Discrimination Act.
1: Was it not part of you that wanted Hillary to win, to, to have a woman? Oh, a
2: absolutely not. Absolutely not. Would I have liked a woman? Uh, yes, but I wouldn't vote for that because I would vote for, do you see the problems that we have? What are your thoughts about how you're going to address them? And is that going to make America better for the majority? Same with the tax reform. I was asked, how did I feel about the tax reform? And I said, what I need to see is that wages are going to go up, and some of that money is going to get passed down to people. That is what has happened. That is what he said would happen. We didn't know if it would happen, but yes. and. uh what i would like to see as a psychologist is i'd like to get a lot of the young women and i would like to teach them to be more assertive and to be more authoritarian and perhaps to be less worried about being nice nice or liked
1: this uh... Echoes uh, uh, an in, well famous interview now between Cathy Newman and uh, I think uh, oh, Jordan oh, Peterson Jordan Peterson yeah I mean I, I I understand I certainly don't want to revisit <laughs> revisit that interview in any uh, I certainly don't want to replicate it whilst I appreciate that um, assertiveness is a positive thing or the rest of it shouldn't we seek to make the world a place where People don't have to get their sharp elbows out
2: oh you know what if no wonder no wonder you scored airhead <laughs> no wonder you want the ideal yeah and here's what i say is the democrats you know of our disneyland in the united states okay and we have adventure land and okay the democrats live in fantasy land and Donald Trump and the Republicans are on Main Street. Yeah, we're dealing with the issues. Yes, it is so nice to be idealistic. And I'm, I'm of the mind, does it work? Are we doing the right things in the right way for the right people? Or are we doing the right things in the wrong way? Or are we doing the wrong things? But you might be doing it, quote-unquote, right, but it's not serving it. And, yeah, I wish that people didn't play politics and they weren't nasty to one another and they were more considerate and thoughtful, And but people aren't all that way. So, for me, I surround myself with people like that, and I really no longer feel bad about not dealing with certain people because they're so unpleasant.
1: Yeah. There's an irony there, isn't there, given the behaviour of of the president and how unpleasant he has publicly been in, in so many ways that in your personal life, you probably wouldn't want to hang around with him.
2: Uh, actually, if it was not when he's showcasing, he's really a very considerate humorous person who's interested in people.
1: So what's he like with you?
2: Oh, I I have only been with him with groups of people. So, But he's incredibly respectful to women professionally. Always has been. Always has been.
1: So he's there's you a difference there between what he shows. You have a
2: skewed view of him because of the liberal media. And, and they give you out-of-context examples. And, yes, at times he says things and none of us would consider saying it that way. But what is the big deal? And you know what the big deal is? Is We've got Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer and we've got CNN and NBC fixated on he tweeted, and we've got to say something and criticise him for it. It's not
1: just the liberal media. Though, I mean, The Republican establishment didn't want Donald Trump to be the candidate. You oh had well. the last Republican president saying that he couldn't vote for him. This isn't just CNN. This is right. This right. the heart of the movement.
2: Oh, yes. And uh, that uh, didn't surprise me at all. There is a difference between being a nationalist and being a globalist. And which thing- do you think Trump is? Oh, a nationalist, hands down. One thing that I have not been able to figure out, and if you were following my uh, Twitter, uh, James Woods had asked the question of, why do people dislike Trump so much? And it's something I've really been thinking about. But there are people that you eat, that are either liked or they're hated they're not in the middle ground their personality is not in the middle ground hillary clinton was like that actually i probably some people would say i'm like that um I, because i i i'm not i'm not mealy mouth. you know i mean i take stands and everything else yeah, but there's a difference between
1: being opinionated and being rude isn't there there's is about the tone people can accept a difference of opinion But it's the tone of it that I think concerns people.
2: So, what specifically of Donald Trump's tone is distressing to you?
1: Uh, The way he talks about Muslims, the way he talks about women.
2: Okay, the way he talks about Muslims because it came out that he said, we're not going to let them in the country?
1: Yeah, I thought that was... Oddly... Um, I was shocked at how, fra- I don't want to use the word stupid, but how uh, ineffective, how obviously ineffective such a policy would be Well, when you it, deal with homegrown terror. You know, it's it, to ban people coming from other countries just seemed it was, not one of the worst places to start.
2: It was already passed by Congress under Obama. It was seven countries because we couldn't vet them. So he wasn't saying all Muslims. And... If you had heard him say, until we figure out what the hell is going on...
1: But that's the bit that worried me the most. Why? Because I did hear him say that. Because when he says, until we figure out what's going on, I feel like, well, most people could tell you what is going on.
2: Absolutely not. Because what was happening is he was looking at the refugees coming in. And if we couldn't vet them, and if we didn't weren't getting the right information about them from their countries and our procedures for vetting were not worked out, a lot of people were going to slip through and we had to get our act together on the American side of it as well. So it was it was a policy thing. And it also, which which country did they take off? I think they took Iraq off of it when it passed through the Supreme Court. Because Iraq got their act together, and you could vet them. So it went from seven countries down to six. And that was the reason for it. But it wasn't communicated. It was a soundbite, a half a soundbite, and without the explanation of understanding that the U.S. didn't have their act together. So if we didn't have our act together, we needed to get it together, so that we also knew how we were going to interact with those countries. But he inherited. He inherited it. Two years, Obama was doing it. Just Obama didn't say anything. You know, Obama's killed more civilians than all of the presidents with all of his drones.
1: When you talk about Trump being a nationalist and not a globalist, is that something that you you wish was different?
2: No. no. You don't want him
1: to be a globalist? No. Why not?
2: (laughs) Well, I... I remember years ago and our politicians were going to go down to Nicaragua and deal with some election there or something like that. And I remember thinking, why does America think we have to go to all these countries and force them into our form of democracy? Because that is a lot of what has happened.
1: But intervention is one strand of... What globalism could be
2: well I also think that we have sent a lot of money to many other countries and we have a lot of problems at home and that money needs to deal with the people on American soil before we're busy taking care of everyone else I know when Trump was saying up I don't know if we're going to stay with NATO It scared countries because it meant that they might have to step up themselves, and they'd been used to America being there. It's like the Big Daddy, while all the kids could get themselves in trouble or not have enough money, but don't worry, Big Daddy America will bail you out. And that scared a lot of people. We have a lot of problems at home. We're starting to deal with some of them. Uh, The unemployment of... Black Americans has gone down considerably. The number of people on food stamps has declined by over 10%. We need to improve our economy and we need to get everyone working. And that, the other thing I like about Donald Trump, his kids call him um, a blue collar billionaire. You know, he spent his time on construction sites. He never had been invited to Davos because a lot of the more refined, the establishment, the never-Trumpers think he's crass. Well, you know what? He is crass.
1: But that's insulting to working-class people, isn't it? To the blue-collar people to say that that's a a facet of being working-class or or less well-off.
2: No, because that's why people love him.
1: That's why some people love him.
2: Well, granted, granted, but you watch this, there are going to be more and more people. And the other prediction I am going to make, and I don't make predictions that often, (laughs) I really don't, um, is that things are going to keep on getting better in America and where conventional wisdom is playing out that the party in power always gets shellacked. The um, at the midterms, I don't think it's going to happen.
1: In terms of what's happening in America, in policy terms, you're right to identify the tax cut and the the news about Apple um, coming back onshore is is, is, is trumpeted as sort of good news. What about things that he's done in terms of state funding, not just in terms of international development, but cutting their healthcare budget and the education budget, and that you know that his first budget was very much raiding all the other departments and, and really lumping the money into the military. The long-term cost of that for America's health care and education, it's hard to say how that could be positive.
2: Well, you see, that's where I believe in far less federal government and the states should raise their uh, enough of their own money. I and mean, granted, the federal government still gives them money, but I don't think the federal government should necessarily be in charge of education... I think the states need to make that decision because they know what their population is. They know what the needs are. Healthcare is a much bigger and confusing issue because first off, because we have, I think, a pretty good healthcare system over here with the NHS, it was never proposed obamacare was never to be that Absolutely. it was supposed to be affordable insurance it became unaffordable insurance what came out was that it had been planned to fail because what the democrats really want is a single single payer where everyone will be insured that won't ever happen in america because the american medical association and their lobbyists are so strong and people went into medicine because they wanted to go into medicine, but they went into private practice because they also wanted to be wealthy doctors. Now, from the insurance standpoint, so I have friends that live in Arizona, and it went up 121% their premiums. And it becomes much easier to actually not have to have Obamacare because of what it has done to the premiums. Health insurance companies have pulled out of states. It's not working for them. And here's why. This is one of the things that um, I I like to focus on in policy, that if you create a policy, a policy should not be punitive. And I always say the Democrats look to punish. We need it to create the behavior that we want. The one thing in Obamacare that said, if you don't take out the insurance, you're going to be fined. Well, the reason that the young people didn't take the insurance was they didn't want to pay 1000 thousand, two thousand $2,000 a month for insurance and they're healthy and they don't really need it when they got fined $1,500 in their taxes at the end of the year. So they ended up making a decision that, all right, so... I don't care because it's far less for me to do that. So what quite a few people have done is they've dropped out of Obamacare and they have just taken what we consider calamity insurance. yeah, you know, Major medical that if something happens and you're going to have huge hospital bills. But other than that, they're paying out of their pocket to go see the doctors.
1: Do you think there'll ever be? <laughs> or would there ever be a serious... Uh, to try and create something like the NHS in America.
2: One of the things Donald Trump did say during the campaign was that he actually did believe in single payer. As an employer, he made sure everyone had insurance. Right now he's got bigger things, bigger fish to fry.
1: Than the health of his people.
2: Yeah. Right, look, w- there are so many things that need to get straightened out.
1: But that is the biggest thing, okay, isn't it? I mean, that is how long people live. Here's what tax
2: reform did. It took the penalty out. So by taking the penalty out... The fact of the matter is, we are a country with 330 million people. What they should have done, because it was only only 30 million who weren't insured, is they should have created a plan to get those people insured... The best, thing, the best thing about Obamacare was that you could not be deprived of insurance if you had a pre-existing condition. We've kept those things.
1: That is really important. But doesn't this whole thing just suggest the insurance model itself is the
2: problem? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and our, our medicines, they cost us so much more over there than here. There's one medication I have to take related to my thyroid. And in the States, it is $15 a pill. I get my 10 per month for the, what is it, £7?
1: Eight something, Eight or you pounds. can get a season ticket well, actually, for about a Well, actually, have a thyroid
2: condition, so I don't have to pay. But, oh, that's good. Yeah. You know,
1: well, good that you don't have to pay. Not good that you got a thyroid condition.
2: But, well, and in the States, if you... You still have to pay, depending on your insurance, 20 to 50% of the cost of it, even if you're covered with insurance. There's a lot that needs to be changed there. If Trump is elected for a second term, I would say he'll start tackling some of those things.
1: You think under Donald Trump will get a publicly funded, free at the point of use, non-insurance based healthcare system in America?
2: Publicly funded? It might be jointly funded but I think that he will look for something
1: that is a heck of a prediction
2: I I, I didn't make it as a prediction <laughs> but I, I, where I can make up my prediction about midterms I think that it will be something that would get on the agenda
1: well we have we've taken up more time than, than I've taken up more time than you should have done Jan so I'll have to leave it there it is always a pleasure talking to you
2: I've enjoyed this conversation and if you ever want to come from Fantasyland land onto main street we can talk about it a bit more
1: oh i'm somewhere in between i mean i've not been to disneyland but what's the i in mean, the epcot center probably because i'm an internationalist <laughs> <laughs> jan thank you very much
2: a pleasure thank you for having me well
1: there you go dr jan halper hayes i am certain there'll be a lot of reaction to that interview, listening back to it there are times when I wished I'd got back in and, and, and challenged her on more things but you have to let these things flow sometimes and uh, she, she was absolutely brilliant I mean so many things come out of that not only in terms of policy which is fascinating to explore and all the contradictions that, that we have as uh, as people who are interested in politics but also very early on that point of should we care about the moral character of the people who lead us? Now, I have really mixed views on this. I, I re- on the whole, feel very strongly that that we should. But equally, people are elected to be politicians and not elected to be brothers or wives or, or, or siblings. Um... Uh, That was the thing that always fascinated me about the Miliband thing, was that so many people were annoyed that it stood against his brother and he didn't bother me at all. So everyone has their own... Everyone has their own line. And it is, I think, perhaps healthy for society to sometimes just consider what is it we are actually wanting of our leaders? Is it moral guidance or, indeed, moral integrity? Is it competence? I suspect that it's a hybrid of the two for most people, whether they perceive it like that or not. I might be very wide of the mark. Uh, but jan is endlessly fascinating lots of stuff in there on policy you can see that the tax cut is already something that republicans are are pumped up by that they are that that is their number one message at the moment uh, is the economy if not the markets certainly the economy um i mean th- this was the thing with jan there were so many avenues that interview could have gone down so many different directions it could have spun off in that sometimes you just have to take the decision to intervene Only at particular times. Because in the end, we talked about things that I'd never planned to talk to Jan about. So a lot of different things came out there. And actually, it is sometimes just fascinating to sit and listen to someone talk about what they think. Um, I think I'm probably saying this out of slight frustration. I didn't intervene more, and I've probably... Probably now trying to retrospectively justify that to myself. But I hope you enjoyed it. As I said at the start, you can follow Jan on Twitter, at biz underscore shrink. You can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. And again, I'm going to annoy you by asking. If you just... I mean, you're probably on your phone now. You've got the device in your hand. Why wouldn't you leave your gratitude in the form of an iTunes... a glowing iTunes review? Dare I suggest that? I'm on tour as well, so you can come and see me. I announced that like it was a surprise to me. I am in the following places on the following dates and it would be lovely to see you there. I'm in one of the greatest cities in the world, Glasgow, on Sunday the 25th of March. I realise that may alienate listeners to my next city. The equally wonderful city of Edinburgh on the 27th of March. That's Sunday the 25th of March at the stand in Glasgow with my brand-new stand-up show, um, a show hastily rewritten in light of recent events again. And on Tuesday the 27th of March I'll go to the stand in Edinburgh, and then later that week, Thursday the 29th of March, I'm in Bristol, another wonderful, another one of the world's greatest cities. By sheer coincidence I'm in three of the world's greatest cities in one week. Um, It would be wonderful to see you there. You can get tickets through my website, mattford.com slash live. I'll be back next week with a wonderful guest, who I'm sure you will love again. Um, But for now, um, join me in thanking uh, Dr Jan Halper-Hayes for giving a perspective (laughs) that If we're all being honest, whatever side of politics we're on, we don't hear that often. I'll see you in a week. Oh, and I should say, and this is a this has been a bad habit that has been five years of doing this on my own, The Political Party is produced by Daisy Knight. Um, Daisy started producing the weekly version. And in this line of work, it is only right to... Um, give people credit. I'm sorry to Daisy and I'm sorry to you for not having said that for the last, I think, three or four... The three weekly shows um, that I've done, it is just purely out of habit. Usually I record these introductions on my iPhone, which is why a few people said it sounded like I was in a tunnel last week. I was just in my bedroom. This is recorded in a high-quality studio. Uh, In fact, Daisy's here, so I could say thank you to you now, Daisy. Do you forgive me for not having thanked you adequately in the last few weeks? Uh That's all you're going to get from Daisy. Perhaps you'll be... Would you you be a guest one week? A shake of the head. I mean, this is the problem now. I'm tempted to make you want to speak more. Okay, well, there you go. That was the voice of Daisy Knight, who uh, expertly produces the show. So thanks to her. Thanks to Jan for coming on. And thanks to all of you for downloading and for those imminent thousands of iTunes reviews that are going to pour in. See you next week.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.